In our modern world, we have built a multitude of arenas and stadiums that accommodate thousands of people for concerts, games, rallies, uh, even church services. And if the little region of Galilee had erected a similar arena, Jesus for sure would have packed it out. We've already seen that he's attracted huge crowds because of his teaching ability, because of his power to heal and perform miracles and cast out demons. Later, we're going to see that he feeds 5,000 men, not counting women and children, all at one time. So the size of crowds that followed him were quite impressive for that day. But more important was the reason people chose to do so. This morning, we begin a new section in Mark's Gospel that runs uh, through chapter 6 and verse 13. It begins with a summary paragraph in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 3, highlighting the great numbers that came to Jesus. Then that moves to the selection of the 12 apostles, and the section ends with those 12 apostles going out to preach as they were called to do. So these are the bookends of this section. And in between, we find more miracles performed, the uh, parable of the four soils given, and then some more issues of conflict. Now, our text begins by describing a mixed multitude coming to see Jesus, not just from Galilee now, but from distant regions. They want to see for themselves this phenomenal person and what he's doing. And some of them are already following Jesus. Others come, they want to be healed, they want to see his miracles, they want to be part of the excitement that he's fostering. And of those who truly follow, Jesus now will specifically call 12 to be with him so they can be trained for greater ministry, and we all know they will eventually become the pillars of the church. Although thousands were drawn to Jesus, not that many really became his disciples. Eventually, people had to make up their mind what they were going to do. They had to decide if they're in or out, if they're with Jesus or not, if they're true or false, if they're going to follow him or just be observers. What they needed to do then we need to do today. Most of us would confess that we are followers of Jesus. We're his disciples today. We believe he's the son of God who came to save us and provide forgiveness of our sin. But the question is, are we really with him? Are we abiding in him? Are we serving him with the gifts and talents that he has blessed us with? The Lord Jesus has selected his followers to serve and obey him. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning your blessing on your word. We're thankful again for the ministry of the Lord Jesus while he was on this earth. But Lord, we're even uh, more thankful that we still are able to serve him today in as much a capacity as the disciples of old. Help us, Lord, to 
walk with you closely, even as they did, and help us, Lord, to be willing to serve you in whatever capacity you've called us to. May we be encouraged in these things as we look to your word today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we read earlier, there are two groups within our passage this morning. The first is a mixed multitude of people that come from all regions around Galilee seeking Jesus. And this is the general population. They're curious about him. They've heard some wonderful things that he's doing, and they've sought him out for various reasons. Then there is the select group of disciples who follow him. Uh, They go to a mountainside, and from that group, Jesus then calls the inner group of 12 for a specific purpose. So first of all, let's take a look here at this mixed multitude who flock to Jesus in verses 7 through 12. And the first thing we note is the Lord's withdrawal from the synagogue in verse 7. But Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea. Now you remember the last passage closed with the Pharisees and the Herodians plotting how they can kill Jesus. So uh, work in the synagogue is now going to diminish. And uh, we know Jesus is not really afraid of these people. Uh, He knows how to handle confrontation. And we've seen that previously. But this may well have been a prudent withdrawal because his time had not yet come. And his purpose was not to argue with religious leaders to prove himself to them. He came to minister to the people. And it was going to be easier to do that outside the confinement of the synagogue. Uh, Greater crowds could come and be taught. He also would avoid the opposition growing from the religious rulers. And so his teaching in the synagogue is is, uh, really depreciating and it's only going to occur one more time in Mark's gospel. Now, Mark records withdrawals on other occasions in order that Jesus and his disciples might rest and be refreshed from their busy schedule. But unfortunately, such escapes were usually short-lived, as was this one. It doesn't take long for people to hear where he's at, and the great crowds continue to flock to Jesus, as we're told in the rest of this verse. A great multitude from Galilee followed him, and then from these other places as well. And note here, twice he says, a great multitude uh, following Jesus. Now the Galileans <clears throat> were most familiar with his work because Jesus had already been through that region to many of the towns, the villages. People heard him preach the uh, the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, people were being healed by him. He was casting out demons. So these are people who followed him. And that particular verb is the one we derive the term disciple from. So it's very likely that actual disciples were beginning to grow and follow Jesus quite a bit wherever he went because they believe in him and they want to learn from him. But his fame is now expanding beyond the region of Galilee 
and it's going into these other uh, parts. And uh, several are mentioned. Now, Judea and its capital, Jerusalem, lay south of Galilee. If you're looking on a map, you have Galilee to the north, then you have Samaria, then you have Judea. And Samaria is not mentioned. That area is not reached yet. The only time Jesus went there is recorded in John's Gospel. So uh, people are coming now from Judea, which we would expect, and then a region called Idumea, which is farther south uh, of Judea. This is a place that began to be populated by ancient Edomites who uh, uh, came from the brother of Abraham, or excuse me, Jacob. And uh, this is the only place Jesus did not go to minister. Uh, it was a place, uh, the place that Her- the Herodian dynasty uh, descended from, and this region was conquered uh, during the intertestamental period by the Maccabees, and really the people there were for- forced to claim uh, Judaism as their religion. So the the Herods, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, they were kind of half Jews, uh, but they really weren't, uh, you know, uh, behind Judaism as much as Romanism of the day. Now, beyond the Jordan, that's talking about the the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, that's where Gad and Manasseh and Reuben, uh, where their tribes were selected anciently, and that's where they stayed. But now this is becoming a region where there's a lot more Gentiles, and uh, we'll find out that it was called Perea, and to the north, Decapolis, or the place of ten cities, and modern-day Jordan is uh, the country that is there now. Uh, then we find that um, they, they uh, came from the northwest, the cities of Tyre and Sidon, again, ancient trade cities, um, um, uh, known as Phoenicia back then, and nowadays the, the nation of Lebanon. So Jesus is eventually going to minister in all of these areas except for Idumea and uh, preach to them the kingdom of God. So these people come, they really kind of come and drove, so much so that verse 9 says they were a potential danger to the Lord Jesus. Um, They came to see what he was doing, excuse me, and he told the disciples, to secure a small boat, maybe a small fishing boat or a rowing type boat, so that when the multitude came, if he needed to retreat, he could actually go out on the water where they couldn't reach him. And uh, it's interesting because uh, they, they come, they're wanting to be healed, they're pushing, they're jostling, they're trying to get to Jesus, and the, the crowd, you know, pushes forward. They might be ho- trying to hold them back. But the danger is they might actually uh, just kind of crush him uh, in the rush to get to him. That suggests that the crowd was not very disciplined, maybe on the edge of riotousness uh, in their eagerness to be able to reach out and touch Jesus and to be healed. So just to protect themselves from this, they would uh, use the boat from time to time, and later on we know Jesus taught from there as well. But these people who came to him, 
did not necessarily want to follow him, to become disciples. They came because they heard all these things that Jesus was doing. Uh, When they came, we're told here that he healed many of their afflictions. That's an interesting word. It literally means uh, a whip or a scourge. So what that suggests to us is really kind of the severity of some of the ailments that they had when they came to him. Uh, They were painful. Uh, Perhaps they were chronic. And they were difficult to deal with. And they wanted to be healed by this man. Now, they came much like we would go to the doctor when we get sick. Um, This isn't necessarily wrong. Uh, When you're sick, you want to be well. Uh, When you have some kind of a permanent affliction, you want to be healed. If I had been living in that day, I would have taken my son Jeffrey to go see Jesus. Um, If I had been feeling uh, like I have felt the last two weeks and my wife has felt, we would have gone to see Jesus. We, We don't want to be sick, we want to be well. And of course, many of these people have even worse conditions. So to have a desire to seek Jesus because you know he can heal you, you believe he can heal you, that's not necessarily uh, wrong. And he does so out of his compassion, as these people really throng him. Others, no doubt, came. Maybe they weren't really sick, but they're curious. They want to see this person who's able to heal. They want to see maybe some miracle performed. They come to see the novelty of it all. And so they're caught up in the spectacular. They're caught up in the phenomena, uh, phenomenal that is performed by Jesus. And then perhaps some were driven for another reason, and that is the possibility of his Messiahship, which they had all the wrong view about what Messiah was to come for. They thought he was going to come and be their king. So a person like this, who can heal people, well, he could heal his wounded soldiers. Uh, He's a person that uh, can provide food for thousands of people out of just a little bit of a supply. So he could feed his armies. And maybe they're thinking uh, in those terms, and later on, uh, especially John's Gospel, chapter 6, people came to him and they tried to force him to be their king. Well, he wanted to avoid all that. That was the wrong view of Messiah at that particular time. But people, no doubt, were probably thinking along those lines. We're told here, that Jesus also cast out the unclean spirits. This is something that that is a little bit different than the healing. This is showing his power over Satan and Satan's kingdom. Uh, The unclean spirits, of course, allude to uh, evil, demonic entities that, that control people from within. And again, if you had a loved one, Uh, who was afflicted in this way, you would take them to see Jesus. And whenever these spirit beings are confronted by Jesus, we find that they fall down before him. Now we know they're in somebody's body, uh, and they're in control of that body, but when Jesus comes, they throw themselves down in front of him, and they confess who he really is, which is Uh, the Son of God. But Jesus always forces them to silence. 
because they are unworthy witnesses to his nature. And furthermore, again, the people needed to come to their own conclusions about his identity through the words that he taught, through his powers, through his holy character. They had to make up their own minds. And the disciples, of course, would eventually come to that conclusion as they uh, sit under his tutelage. But the one thing that's lacking in this paragraph that we have seen previously is suggesting to us that these, these people who came, who thronged him, were less than followers because Jesus does not do any teaching. And we know that the purpose of his healing as performing of miracles is casting out of demons was to validate the message of the gospel of the kingdom. And he wanted people not to focus so much on their needs being met physically as to listen to his words and to enter his kingdom by accepting those things. So people came to him but not always with the best or proper reasons. And there are those today who may seek Jesus for improper reasons as well. Uh, Some are more interested today in signs and wonders than the actual teachings of Jesus. Some may try to use religion or the church to make a name for themselves and build a a mega ministry around their own personality. Of course, Jesus has to be uh, in the formula. Others may be trying to seek the one true religion, and Christianity is one of the candidates. Others may be curious about who Jesus is, but they don't really want to listen to what he has to say. But in every generation... There are always some who believe in him and faithfully follow him. And from this group, Jesus now selects his 12 apostles and enables them to serve him. So let's take a look at the selection of Christ's servants beginning in verse 13. And the first thing we note here is that this selection was anchored in prayer. Now, Mark does not allude to this. He tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. But in, in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, we find that this selection uh, was seated with prayer. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples. So this is the same occasion. Jesus had been praying all night about the selection of this uh, inner group of disciples that would now uh, walk with him on a regular basis. Uh, He was always in close communion with God the Father. His decisions were not arbitrary. They were always within the will of God. And so in the morning, he returns to this group of disciples that have come to the mountainside with him, and he makes his divine selection. 
Now we have to remember that these men were already followers of Christ. We've looked at the call of five of them, uh, Andrew, Peter, James, John, and Matthew. Uh, They believed in him. They were committed to him. They answered his call to follow him. But now we have an official appointment before other witnesses that these 12 will be the foundation of the new kingdom. Now, they're not completely aware of their full responsibilities, uh, but their appointment is secure as the Lord Jesus calls them to this ministry. This is also a sovereign call. They really did not have a choice in the matter. Uh, They were already willingly following the Lord. Now he appoints them to greater service and responsibility. He's chosen them for his mission. They have not chosen him. When God calls a man to preach, there's really no sense of having a choice about it. There may be resistance, there may be questioning, there may be a struggle, but the sense of compulsion goes beyond thinking you are the one who makes the final decision. You know that God has called you, he's put his hand upon you, and you just need to submit. Now, let's take a look at the twofold purpose of Christ's selection of these men. We're told here uh, in verse 14, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. All right. So he's appointed them. That means there's a call that cannot be resisted. And uh, he's called them to be with him. These men had been with Jesus at least some of the time. We're not exactly sure uh, when in his ministry this occurred. Obviously within the first year. Now all of them are going to be with him all of the time as the official 12. They're going to be in intimate, close relationship with him. Wherever he goes, they'll be with him. They'll be listening to his teaching, which will increase now toward his disciples. They'll be obeying his commands. They'll be serving in any way that he directs them. And the preposition used here, with, being with Jesus, is suggestive. It indicates the closest possible association, which results in resemblance. As they determine to be with Christ, the more they will become like him, which is preparatory and necessary for service. Now today... We're with him in a post-Pentecostal way. We're not with him physically, but we are in Christ, and he is in us. You can't get any closer than that. But to know him better, we have to be in his word, under his teaching, seeking the strength of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're with him today. That's how we abide with him. And this prepares us for service. So we've got to be walking closely with the Lord. Now, they also were called uh, that they might begin to do what Jesus was doing. 
And the first thing mentioned here is that he was going to send them out to preach. This is the same verb used of Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And again, it means to proclaim, not as an evangelist, not the evangel, but Caruso as a herald uh, bringing the good news to people. One commentator wrote, the word always suggests formality, gravity, and authority that must be listened to and obeyed. So it's an authoritative call, and God is using it in this special way. Now, the Bible tells us that all disciples are to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus. They're, in that sense, they are evangels. They're sharing the good news of the gospel with friends and people that they knew, they know. But, but not all of them are called to preach in this way. This is the call of the pastor teacher, the call of the evangelist, the missionary. It's a specific call that must be answered. Now, Jesus also grants them the authority to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Those are the things that Jesus was doing later on in their mission. They will be doing these kind of things. They have the right to do this because uh, the Lord Jesus gives them the authority. The word power there is the word authority. He has the power, but he also authorizes people uh, to use that power in the ways that he deems. So the power is his, he gives the authority to those he selects, and then they go out and do the same things that he does. Now again, these were apostolic gifts. They were used to establish the church, and they're no longer necessary today, but there are certainly many other gifts that God gives to his people, bestows on his church, that they may use those in service. All right, so let's close out by taking a look at the men that Jesus called to serve with him. And as you think about the disciples, really, (coughs) excuse me, we don't know a lot about many of them. These men were not impressive in the eyes of the world. They weren't famous, they weren't rich, they weren't popular, they were really kind of just the opposite. We found out that at least four of them were fishermen. Maybe three others were as well. One was a tax collector that most people hated. Others we know virtually nothing about, even to this day, except what we have recorded in God's word. But they were called by him, They were with him, they were trained by him, and thus they became the foundation of the New Testament church. And when Jesus selected them, he took upon himself the responsibility of changing them and making them his servants. And they were free from having to change themselves. They were free from any complaint of inability. And since he called them, he would equip them for the job. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, They became men through whom he could act unhindered 
in the mystic mystery of Pentecost, when they received the Spirit, they became actual members of his body, like we do, mastered by his intelligence, driven by his emotions, governed by his volitions. And so we should be controlled in the same way in modern times. Now, if, if Jesus was going to change them, do we have some examples of that? Yes, we have two. Because there are uh, three disciples that he actually surnamed. He gave them another name. So let's consider that for a moment. First of all, he named Simon, whom we've already met, Peter, in verse 16. Now, the word Peter means rock. But as you think of of Peter before the book of Acts, uh, did he have a rock-like character? Well, he was impetuous. He was emotional. He was inconsistent. He was unstable. Uh, Jesus had to rebuke him because Peter didn't want to accept the teaching Jesus was going to have to die. But later, he understands who the Lord Jesus is. He confesses that Christ is the Son of God, Son of the living God. That becomes the the rock-like foundation upon which the church will rest. But also, his character began to change, and he became firm and stable in his preaching and teaching. And we have two epistles that he has written in our Bible. Then he named James and his brother John the the name Boanerges, or Sons of Thunder. Now, we're not exactly sure of the derivative of that, that name and what it means, but it may refer to uh, their judgmental zeal as they served Jesus. There are a couple of occasions where they were very strong in uh, their attitude toward other people in their ministry. For instance, one time, they asked Jesus if they should call down fire upon a group of people uh, who were in opposition to Jesus. Jesus, of course, said, no, you can't do that. They also forbade somebody else of casting out demons in Jesus' name. And he says, no, don't do that either. So they were very zealous for the Lord, but sometimes in a wrong way that wasn't tempered by the Spirit. So they had to learn that temperance. And James becomes the first martyr of the church. And John becomes the apostle of love who wrote the gospel, who wrote three letters and the book of Revelation. So these are men that God changed as he called them to be his disciples. So in order to serve the Lord, well, we all need to change uh, those flaws in our character. God will help us to do that. The good qualities are going to be honed by the Holy Spirit to be perfected in Christ. The bad are going to be weeded out. And, of course, there's much in the New Testament that relates to that. Now, one closing thought concerning the last disciple that's named here, and that's Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Uh, It's kind of amazing that one person was called, and that person would betray the Lord Jesus. Judas's name is never alluded to without this epitaph of the betrayer. But in the divine will, 
in the predestination of God, this had to be the case. It's amazing uh, that um, an evil deed had to prevail so the greatest good might be carried out. And that is, of course, Jesus being betrayed, going to trial, being crucified, and then being raised from the dead. Morgan also described this in, in its seriousness when he wrote, this appallingly solemn fact that he, meaning Jesus, appointed one to be with him who never by any means came into that close and mystic association which is appointment, appointment or appointed one to preaching whose preaching, if it ever began, ceased and changed into betrayal. That he appointed one to cast out demons who so failed to respond that Satan entered into him. So there is that danger, certainly, of false profession, false religion. Well, let's close with a couple of thoughts. First of all, where do you stand with Jesus? Are you in the fickle crowd or are you a disciple? A disciple believes that Jesus is the Son of God who came to save us. A disciple has been forgiven of his or her sin, uh, and they become a witness of Christ's saving power. And Jesus invites all to become his disciples. And as a disciple, then, are you really with him? We can be close, or we can be distant. We get close by being in his word every day, by being in his church, by growing in our relationship to him. We let him change us to be like him so we can better serve him. We're not content with an unchanging status quo. And finally, we have the issue of service here, a very pointed one as these men are appointed to be his apostles. Of course, Jesus didn't call us to be apostles like the first 12. He does call us, he does gift us to serve as his disciples. And we ought to be serving him in some capacity. And the closer you are to him, the better equipped you're going to be to serve. And he doesn't call everyone to preach. He still calls people uh, to preach in the way that these men would preach, to proclaim his word in an official capacity. But every young Christian man, and we have some in our midst today, should be open to and listening for such a call. If it comes, you will know it, and you won't be able to escape it and have the peace of God if you try to. So let's think about these things and thank God that we can serve him today in the capacity to which he's called us. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again today for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that so many people uh, came to hear the Lord Jesus, to um, receive from him the gift of healing. And yet, Lord, uh, many of them didn't seem to be much interested in his teaching, what he could uh, provide for them spiritually and uh, how he could bring them into the kingdom of God. 
Help us, Lord, uh, to realize that we need to be with you each day. We know we're in Christ. We've been saved, but uh, we have a responsibility to draw close to you each and every day. Help us, Lord, to serve you and others with our life each day and be used of you to draw people into your kingdom. And Lord, if there be one here today that you have called to preach, we pray you begin speaking to their hearts even today. Bless us as we close, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. close today, uh, let's sing a couple of stanzas, number 478. Jesus still calls us in many ways, so let's stand together, number 478.
what they told us, but again, you know, I've got a 